as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us safely here this morning, for gathering us around your word. Please, Lord, would you cause your word to be at work in our hearts and our minds, that we would know you better, we would better understand what it means to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be prepared for his return. We ask this in his name. Amen. Are you ready for Jesus? Are you ready for Jesus? Over the past few weeks, we've been looking through the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the end times. What was going to happen between his leaving them and his return? A couple of weeks ago, we saw that all of the signs that pointed to the fact that his return was near, was at hand, had been fulfilled. So we know now that he could come back at any time. He could come back at any time. But last week, we saw a couple of things about the nature of his return. Firstly, that it would be unexpected. No one can predict the time at which Jesus is coming back. No one can do that. He says that people will be going about their day-to-day business when he returns. It will be a big surprise. No one knows exactly when Jesus is returning. We know he will, but we don't know when. And secondly, we also saw last week that though Jesus is returning at some point in the future, we should expect a long delay. We saw from the parable of the ten virgins that we as Christians have to be consistently prepared for Jesus' return. Being being prepared for Jesus is about consistent preparation. It's not about being prepared for him in case he comes back tomorrow, but it's being ready for him if he were to come back tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month or next year or at any other point in the future of our lives. But that begs the question, what does it it mean to be ready for Jesus? What does consistent preparation for his return actually look like in practice? I think we have the answer to that question in the parable that we're looking at this morning, the parable of talents. So please come back with me to chapter 25, verse 14. If you close your Bibles, it's page 1001. Let me read from verse 14. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So first we're introduced to a man who's going on a long journey. He's a rather wealthy man, he's got great possessions. And as he goes, as he's preparing to go on this very, very long journey, he calls his servants to himself and entrusts them with his possessions. 
He doesn't want it all just to go to waste while he's away. He wants his possessions to be in safe hands while he's away. He wants them to be put to good use. That wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day. Servants were often granted managerial roles when the master left. They were the ones put in charge of the household. So one by one, this master calls his servants to himself and entrusts them with his possessions. The amount he gives to each one of them is on the basis of what they can handle, what they can manage. So to one he gives five talents, to the second he gives two, and to the third he gives just one. This isn't pocket money he's handing out here. The master's not just pulling out the old 50 ringgit notes and giving it to his servants. These sums that he's entrusting to his servants as he goes away are huge. One talent in Jesus' day was equivalent to 20 years' wages for the common labourer. So, in today's terms, we're talking about half a million ringgits. One talent, half a million ringgits. Don't feel sorry for the servant who only gets one talent. He's still being entrusted with a small fortune. So now that the master's property is in safe hands, immediately we're told, once he leaves, the first servant, he gets to work. He takes his five talents and he goes out and he trades with the local dealers and he makes five more. And so does the second servant. The second servant takes his two talents and he goes out to the dealers and he makes two more. But then we're told about this third servant who takes a very different attitude to the first two. Come back with me to verse 18. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent, he who had received the one talent, went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. This guy wanted to play it safe. He was probably aware that there were real risks involved in trading great fortunes. So unlike the first two, he does absolutely nothing with his one talent, with his half a million ringgits. Instead, he secures the money in the customary safe of Jesus' day, the ground on which we're standing. He digs a big hole in the ground and he buries the fortune that his master has entrusted to him covers it up. Doesn't do anything with it. Can't make any loss. Can't make any gain. But it's just there, secure in the ground. And there it stays. For a long, long time. Until eventually, the master returns. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master comes back. We're told in verse 19, he meets with his servants and he 
settles accounts with them. That's the phrase Jesus uses in verse 19. He settles accounts. And that little phrase informs us that the master had entrusted his possessions to his servants in order that they might use those possessions, in order that they might put them to good use. So as we, see, as we read, the first one steps forward, shows actually, here, here are your five talents back, and here are five more. And the master is very pleased. Well done, good and faithful servants. That servant had used his talents wisely. And then the second steps forth. He holds out not two talents, but four. He had made a 100% profit as well. And the master says to him also, Well done, good and faithful servants. I have given you little, and now I will set you over much. But it's a very different story with the third servant. The one who buried his talent in the ground who played it safe, who decided not to use it at all, made no use of it whatsoever. Verse 24, He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. This final servant's attitude is very different from the first two, isn't it? He accuses his master of unfair practice. He doesn't just give back what had been entrusted to him. He starts on this rant. He speaks of his master as one who makes profit from another person's labours, like a farmer who harvests crops in a field that he didn't work on himself. And using this excuse that he believed his master to be a harsh man, a fierce man, a man who he was afraid of, he tries to justify his total lack of action. Burying that one talent in the ground, playing it safe, not putting to use what his master had granted to him. He just says to his master, here, you have back what's yours. No more. No less. So is the master pleased with this servant? Is he impressed at the prudence this servant had shown by actually keeping his possessions secure while he had gone away on his long journey? No. No, the master's not pleased at all. He's actually very angry. Verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. As far as the master is concerned, this final servant who did not use what had been entrusted to him, he was wicked, slothful, lazy, Had he actually been afraid of the master, the master actually accuses him of saying, you're using faulty logic. You're afraid of me? You're afraid that I'm a harsh man? Then why didn't you do something? Had he really thought that his master was a harsh man who would punish him if he made no return, why was he just burying his talents in the ground? 
Why did he just leave it there? Why did he make no use of it whatsoever? The very reason the master gave him his possessions is that he would go and use them. That's what the first two servants did. They didn't need to be told what to do. They went immediately. They started trading. But instead of being faithful, seeking to use what he had been entrusted with, this last wicked, lazy servant does nothing. And his complete lack of action, his lazy attitude, reveals him to be no servant at all. He's not really a servant of the master because he's not acting like a servant. He may have had the title, he may have worn the name badge, he may have been known in the local community as a servant. But when push came to shove, when he was called to act, he did nothing. He did nothing. He failed to do what genuine servants did. He was shown to be no servant of the master at all. And so now his master passes judgment on this wicked, lazy servant. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Verse 28. For to everyone who has, more, who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, here we see how serious this servant's complete lack of action really is. The money's taken from him, he doesn't have anything anymore. And the first servant, who had acted faithfully, he gets that extra talent. But this guy, the guy who didn't act, not only what he had is taken away from him, he is thrown out of the house. The relationship that he supposedly had with his master was broken. Here was a servant who was not ready for his master's return. He wasn't ready. It's a rather straightforward story, really. But as with all of Jesus' parables, it has a deeper spiritual meaning. One that can only be understood by reading this parable in chapter 25 in its wider context. As we noted in the introduction, we are in the middle of a section where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the need to be prepared for his return. And Jesus starts this parable, have a look, down at verse 14, at the, at the beginning. He starts it by saying, for it will be like, for it will be like. What's that phrase referring to? We'll come back to the beginning of chapter 25. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. This parable, flowing on from the previous one, the parable of the ten virgins, is describing realities about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So who does the master represent? I'm sure I probably don't need to spell it out. It's Jesus, of course. He is the one whom God has enthroned at the highest place. He is the master of God's kingdom. The Master's long journey represents the time from which Jesus ascended into heaven to the time when he will return. 
And the master's servants represent all those who claim to be members of that kingdom. So in Jesus' day, that would include both his own disciples and the Jews, the religious leaders, even the Pharisees. They would all have been included in that group. For us, for the servants, are those who claim to be Christian. Anyone, anywhere, currently living at the moment who would claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So that basic framework in mind, we're going to apply this parable under two headings. Firstly, true servants act the part. True servants act the part. And secondly, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Let's start. True servants act the part. We saw in the parable that the master gave to each of his servants resources that they might serve him. And in the same way, we, as a church, have been granted individually resources by which we are to serve God. I don't think the talents that the servants received represent something specific. I think it's just a very general, uh, general, very general thing. It's used in a very general way. They could represent our skill, maybe our time, or our money, or, or anything else that we have received from God's hand. I remember a friend from school who had an amazing ability to make money. He could spot the right deals. He would know what to buy and he would know when to sell it. It was an incredible ability. He could make a lot more money than than the average person, certainly a lot more than me. God had gifted him to make money. Having gifted him to uh, be a pastor, having gifted him to be an events organiser, he had given him the gift of a business acumen which meant he could make lots of money. And that's what he did in service to his Lord. He was able to fund lots of vital gospel ministry through using that gift in the right way out of service to God. But I remember another friend at university who had just an incredible gift to encourage people. He encouraged them in a way I certainly couldn't. And that might not have seemed very impressive at the time, just someone who would just come alongside and give people a helping hand when they need it. But it enabled fellow brothers and sisters to serve God in their own way. It gave them the encouragement they needed to do that. The point Jesus is making is that we have been gifted with different abilities and different opportunities to serve him. None of us are identical. We're not all the same. Some of us have been granted greater opportunities. Some of us less. Just like the servants from the parable who received different amounts based on what they could manage. The nature of what we have received is not important. Using what we have received in a wise way, now that is important. Both the servants were awarded equally. The master gave the same reply to both of them when he returned because they made use of what they received. Of course, we do need to be careful, don't we, about applying works in the Christian life. This parable, and I've heard it taught like this before, this parable is not teaching that if we individually use our abilities to the very best extent in the very best ways we can possibly think of we can earn a place in heaven. 
We can make ourselves right with God. I've heard this parable taught like that before. That is not what it is teaching. To even suggest that would be to deny the gospel by which we are saved. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of worshipping God faithfully with our lives. No one who depends on their own works on the day when Jesus returns will be ready for him. He will not approve of anyone depending on their own good works on that day. The servants in this parable, they didn't earn their positions as servants by faithful service and we cannot earn a right to be in heaven. The only way by which we are made right before God, the only way by which we are able to secure a place in heaven is through trusting in the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. And I hope all of us have done that. But once we have accepted the gospel, once we have actually put our trust in Jesus as our Saviour and as our Lord, it's, it's not as if our lives then cease to matter. It's not as if we just stop working then. Just like the Master with his servants, God has entrusted us with important responsibilities. See what the Apostle Paul wrote to young converts in the Ephesian church, it's up on the screen. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Being a member of the kingdom now is not a passive exercise. The Apostle Paul had to rebuke Christians who fought exactly that. They thought the Christian life was just about what you believe in your head. It's got nothing to do with actions. Well, have a look at what he wrote to them. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, if it does, but faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. A faith that does not work itself out in practical ways is dead. That's what the Apostle James says. That's what the Lord Jesus is saying here. That kind of faith is non-existent and it cannot save. The faithful servants in this parable were shown to be true servants because they acted. Because they used what had been entrusted to them for the glory of their master. Unlike that last wicked servant who spurned his master, buried the possessions that he'd been entrusted with in the ground, who failed to act. He did absolutely nothing. He was a servant. He should have known what to do, but he did nothing. If we are true disciples of Jesus, we will show it in what we do. That is the kind of disciple that Jesus will approve of when he returns. And that brings us on to our next heading. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Just as that master returned after a long time, suggesting again, like we saw last week, we should expect a delay in the return of Jesus, 
so Jesus will return and we, like those servants, will be brought to account for the things that we have done in the body. As we saw in the parable, there will be a great division on that day. But the division that we saw in the parable, it's, it's not between those who clearly weren't servants and those who were. It was between those who appeared to be servants. For us today, those who claim to be Christians and those who really are disciples of Jesus. It's between those that just claim to be members of the kingdom, like the wicked servant who simply wore the name badge but didn't serve, and those who are shown to be members of the kingdom in their faithful service, like those first two servants who obeyed their master. And the judgment that the master passes, both on those first two servants and on that last wicked servant, acts both as an encouragement and as a very serious challenge for us today. We'll look at the encouragement first. You see the way the master dealt with his faithful servants? They had done their duty. They had put what he had entrusted to them to good use. And as a result, they received their master's blessing. He says to both of the servants, verses 21, 23, identical, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well, that was the common reward for faithful servants in Jesus' day. If they did well with the resources that had been given to them, they would be entrusted over much more. But the master goes on to say something quite extraordinary. He doesn't just say, here, have greater responsibility. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus is leaving the parable behind here, just for a moment, and stating, very bluntly, a wonderful spiritual reality. The Bible doesn't give many descriptions of heaven, but what it does say again and again and again, the one central thing that will make heaven so great is the fact that we will be with our Lord. And our joy will be totally bound up in the goodness of his presence. The broken relationships, the pain, the hardships of this life that we experience, they will be a thing of the past. We can look forward to enjoying the new creation that Jesus will usher in, made possible by his death on the cross for us. What an encouragement as we struggle now. Serving Jesus in this life is not an easy task, is it? The world is against us, tempting to ignore God's rule over our lives and just give in to sin, to squander what God has given us on meaningless and selfish pursuits. That's what we face each day. We battle with our own temptations. Living for Jesus is hard work. As Andrew said last week, the Christian life, it's not a 100 metre dash, it's a marathon. It's hard work. But friends, be encouraged. See what the Master says to the faithful servants. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter 
into the joy of your Master. As we persevere in loving and obeying our Lord with all that we have been granted, we can look forward to that day when Jesus will say that to us. And the hardships of Christian service that we experience now will pale in comparison to the blessings that we will have on that day. It's going to be a great encouragement to us when we struggle. But if that master's judgment on the faithful servants acts as an encouragement, then his judgment on the wicked servants is a very serious warning. Let me look at verse 30. Let's just read what he says to that wicked servant. He says, Cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. Friends, here is a severe warning to any of us today who are pretending to be a Christian. Maybe you come to church each Sunday, you sing the songs, you listen to the sermon, you enjoy catching up with your friends. But you know you haven't accepted the Gospel. And your commitment to Jesus, it starts on a Sunday and it ends on a Sunday living with him as your master during the week, well, that's, that's not really your thing. So your Bible, well, that remains closed. Sin isn't really much of an issue for you. You don't really pray. And your life's aim isn't to serve the master. You're committed to something else. Friends, don't be that person. There were people like that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, whom he condemned just back in chapter 23. They refused to accept him as Lord and they abused the responsibilities and the resources that God had given them as the leaders of his people at the time. But they were hypocrites. They served their own ends. They had no interest in serving God. They claimed to be members of the kingdom, but they were shown through their absolute failure to act like it, to be false. They were no members at all. Don't be like them. Don't be the third servant from the parable who looked the part but didn't belong. Because when our true master returns, he is going to settle accounts with each of us, you and me. And all of those who have been Christians for show, well, they will be condemned on that day, sharing the same fate as unbelievers who never took any interest in Jesus Christ. Cast out of his presence permanently like that third servant into hell. If you are here today and you know that at the moment you're living like that third servant, please repent. Please repent. Please put your trust in Jesus and start living as his disciple today. Well, we started with that question, are you ready for Jesus' return? Are you prepared? Being prepared, Jesus teaches us in this parable, it means action now. 
It's not like waiting around for a bus. It means actively living with Jesus as our master as we wait for him. Serving him in the good deeds he has given us to do with what he has granted to each one of us. His message for us as his disciples today as we wait, keep going. Keep trusting. Keep depending on his death for the times when we fail and we will fail and keep serving. Working out the salvation that he has made possible by his death on the cross for us and looking forward to that day when I pray we will all hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is clear and cutting. It cuts down to the greatest depths of our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for encouraging us and challenging us today. Please help us to apply your word in the way that we need to, that as we go from here, we will be living as faithful disciples. We would be prepared for Jesus' return, for your glory. Amen.